So why do people twist themselves to make their Christian ethics fit their political ideas and political desires? Our guest today is a professor and a Christian ethicist who has literally written the book on the subject, David P. Gushy. And he's talking about how this lack of Christian ethics is actually putting our democracy in danger. And he says this authoritarian pull of Christianity is putting us all at risk in our culture. We're going to talk to him about that today. David P. Gushy, the Reverend Professor, is an amazing post-evangelical thinker, a distinguished university professor of Christian ethics at Mercer University, chair of Christian social ethics at, and I have no idea how to pronounce that university in Amsterdam, but it sounds very prestigious. He's an author, co-author or editor of all over 30 books, including his latest, which is called Introducing Christian Ethics from Front Edge Publishers. He's widely regarded as one of the world's leading post-evangelical thinkers. That's why we knew we had to talk to him. So join me for this great podcast. And if you would, after listening to the podcast, go to my website, pastor-paul.com and sign up for my newsletter. You have to click that little box so I can send you an email. And also check out our benefits for subscribing for as little as $5.99 a month, up to $100 a month. You can get some great benefits and help support and grow the work we do here with the Pastor Paul community. Would you do me a favor and check it out? I would be forever grateful, pastor-paul.com. That's pastor with a dash, paul.com. And don't forget that dash or it's going to send you to a crazy website that you're not going to want to go to. All right, now join me for our podcast today as we talk to the Reverend Professor David P. Gushy on this edition of the Post-Evangelical Podcast. honored to have uh, David P. Gushy with us today. And as we're recording this, you're, we're, we're a day before the election. Of course, people will be listening afterward. But how, how are you feeling about Georgia? All of us are watching Georgia and Pennsylvania right now. How are you feeling about Georgia today? Uh, Georgia is a very closely divided state. Um, uh, it looks to me like that I mean the vote is going to be very close. I think the Republican governor and administration are going to be reelected. Um, I'd say the one that we're watching most closely is whether the old football star Herschel Walker can defeat the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church for the Senate. Um, it's been an ugly campaign. All kinds of disturbing things have come out about Herschel Walker, but the partisanship is so intense. We've seen so many ads here over these months. You can't turn on the television uh, without seeing them. We'll be glad when it's over. But um, but yeah, Georgia is one of the handful of states where where everything is ground zero all the time, it seems. Yeah, yeah. And you're uh, you're a Christian ethicist. What what does it say about us as Christians that we are virulently, if not violently, anti-abortion? But then suddenly, well, if our guy is paying for abortions, yeah, yeah, that, that'll be great. That's fine. Yeah. It, 
we've seen some interesting um, interviews with voters attempting to rationalize the irreconcilable, and it's it's painful to actually watch people try to twist themselves into moral pretzels to to do the undoable. Um, you know, abortion is a significant moral issue. I've I've written about it many times, and it's complicated, but once again, it's a political football. And I mean, the word hypocrisy is not nearly strong enough to, to describe what we're seeing on the conservative Christian side. And it's interesting, Paul, how much gets explained away by, by the, well, you know, nobody's perfect and he is born again. So now everything's on the other side of that and we can't really judge. And um, except for when it's the other side, then we can judge. But when it's our person, we can't really judge. Um, it's uh, cheap grace when it has to do with our people and no grace yeah. at all when it has to do with the other side. That's how that's certainly how it looks here. And, and haven't we seen that starkly in the uh, treatment of Bill Clinton and his sexual escapades versus Donald Trump when all of a sudden, I, I mean, I've I've made videos showing Franklin Graham saying out loud, you know, Bill Clinton has forfeited his right to be president because his wife can't trust him. And then saying, we're electing a commander in chief, not a pastor in chief. And it's, it's like, how, I don't know how you can be a Christian and sleep at night and, and live in hypocrisy like that. When Jesus seemed to say that hypocrisy is an, is an outgrowth of, of the worst of religion. Well, the big picture is that, our political divisions have become ultimate for us. Um, and our political tribal loyalties have become ultimate. And, and so things that people used to know, right and wrong, have washed away under the impact of tribal politics. Um, that's not even fair to tribes. I think tribes are better than what we're, you know, what we're witnessing here. It's just, um, and you, you, there's a classic polling question. Um, you ask evangelicals, how important is personal moral character in your vote for the president? And, you know, around the Clinton era, oh, yeah, extremely important. Very, very important. And then once uh, Donald Trump came along, those numbers dropped dramatically, well under 50%. And it isn't like, <laughs> here, I'll sound like a conservative. It isn't like the Bible changed. It isn't like the teachings of Jesus changed. Um, it's that the team uniforms changed. And so yeah, therefore the values changed. And Christians really need to do better than that and have not done better than that. And it's been very discrediting for the witness of Christianity in our culture. Uh, yeah, a big part of why why we're seeing what we're seeing. And I think, you know, you said it well, I, I think abortion is an important moral issue that we should be able to argue over. Um, but I I try to say to my Christian friends, it's, it's really not a prevalent issue in the Bible. And for us to have made it, I don't think it's a prevalent issue in the Bible. You can disagree with me, but uh, the, the that we've made it the number one litmus test of Christianity and certainly of Christian voting in many ways. Um, I think it should not only be extant in the Bible, but it ought to be clearly a priority in the Bible. And I don't know, what do you think? I, I don't see it. 
Um, I don't see it at all in the Bible, but I certainly don't see it as a as a major priority of God. Uh, it's only it's only by implication. Um, it, you know, you have one passage in uh, um, Old Testament law that may have to do with miscarriage, um, but you know, it it is it is present in, in the post New Testament teaching of the early church. It's there, but it's not really in the Bible. Um, but it's it's more. Um, I mean, in terms of the cluster of how po our politics has developed, it, it did become the number one litmus test issue on the conservative side. But as you pointed out at the beginning, <laughs> it's really, really important until it's not convenient. And then <laughs> and then it's not all that important, right? Yeah. Um, are you uh, in the miscarriage? Are you talking about the uh, the numbers five uh, passage? Or I think the what is Exodus 20, I think, has I think something it's that about one where the men are fighting and the woman yeah. gives birth. And it's not clear if that's a miscarriage or a early birth. Yeah. But I mean, that's a it's, it's certainly not like, you know, chapter and verse, book after book about abortion. It's not there. Um, there's many, many more issues that are addressed um, much more extensively. Um, yeah. So. And, and when I talk to my Jewish friends, they tell me their law is that the, it's not only permissible for a woman to end a pregnancy, but in some cases it's commanded. Um, and so... Yeah. If her life is the, at risk, yeah. If her That's life is at risk, uh, or, or if I think the I think the Tal is the Talmudic uh, passage. If she if she's in distress, and that has even been interpreted to be in financial distress, mm. and uh, so anyway, this is what my Jewish friends tell me, and and they say we are appropriating Jewish text of Jeremiah one or Psalm one thirty nine to fit a political agenda that simply is not the writers of those passages would not have agreed with at all. Certainly it was not their agenda. That's not what Psalm 139 is about. And it's not what Jeremiah 1 is about. Um, but in my book, After Evangelicalism, <clears throat> I talk about how, how we need to think more broadly about the overall Christian adoption, appropriation, and abuse of the Hebrew Bible. You know, um, yeah. that that we never asked if we, if we could make make the Hebrew Bible part of our canon. And uh, when we took it, uh, we then embarked on a separation from the Jewish community, uh, often a bitter anti-Semitism, and uh, a use of, of text that in many cases would be completely unrecognizable to the Jewish community, you know? So that's just, yeah. but that, that's a bigger Christian problem, goes back many, many centuries. But, but yeah, for evangelicals to, to take Jeremiah 1 or Psalm 139 and make it some kind of ironclad proof text about abortion is just, it's, it's not good biblical work. Yeah. yeah. I, I, again, proximity with others starts to help us to see ourselves and talking to a, a couple of Jewish rabbis that I've befriended and, and hear their viewpoint on how we treat their holy text that they hold with much higher regard than we hold our own, uh, really was humbling for me. And and I I try not to even use the term Old Testament anymore because I think it is an anti-Semitic um, term. Uh, and and then you know and, and I've talked with my Jewish friends like we do have some disagreements in our religion and that's going to happen. But I, you know 
can I be a Christian and not be an anti-Semite? That's that's been an interesting talk uh, between me and and them. But I had never in my life I knew Luther had, had was anti-Semitic and and really problematic, but for the most part, I had never thought of our use of Jewish scripture as anti-Semitic. So it's good to learn some things about ourselves from time to time, or at least a, a misuse. And and these are things we learn when we are in conversations outside of our little subculture, which is really important. Are you rethinking or deconstructing your faith? Are you a person like so many of us who has left your church behind, but not your faith or spirituality? Well, don't walk that journey alone. Thanks for letting me interrupt this conversation to introduce you to my Deconstruction You mentorship. If you're asking yourself questions like, who is God? Is hell real? Or do I even need to believe in hell? What does the cross mean to me? And how do I look at the Bible? Then Deconstruction You is for you. As a mentee of Deconstruction You, you'll receive five study guide lessons that take you through biblical foundations that not only say it's okay to rethink some of these things, but actually a command of the Bible. And you'll get group meetings with other people walking this journey like you. And maybe best of all, you and I will have five one-on-one Zoom meetings together where, where we'll talk through what your faith looks like in this season. Let's walk this journey together. Go to my website, pastor-paul.com and look for Deconstruction You, where we can start the journey of rethinking faith together. Leaving your church doesn't mean you have to leave faith or spirituality behind or even Jesus if that's a meaningful thing in your life. And for just signing up today, you're getting a special ebook free from me called The Making of Joseph. It's an ebook that tells my story of writing my novel called Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Becomes Religiously Wrong. And the ebook contains three free chapters of that book as well. So go right now to pastor-paul.com, sign up, get the free ebook, and let's start walking the journey of deconstruction together. Don't walk it alone. I love walking alongside people, rethinking their faith with great courage. You're amazing. And I promise you, God is not mad at you for that process. So join me in Deconstruction You. And now back to our podcast on the Post Evangelical Podcast. We introduced you as a as a Christian ethicist. What What does that mean? Define Christian ethicist for us. Um, a Christian ethicist is somebody who thinks about the moral dimension of the Christian faith, uh, the, the question of our character, what kind of people we are, um, uh, how we orient our lives in terms of our moral decisions in everyday life and big questions and small questions. Um, I think also Christian ethics has to do with the the witness that Christians bear in the public arena, what we say, what we say that the Christian faith means or implies or entails when it comes to public life, like uh, politics or war or economics or or indeed abortion. So, so Christian ethics is about the moral dimension of the Christian faith, thinking systematically about it, uh, trying to help Christians be more faithful followers of Jesus. 
And uh, I, I, I pulled this quote from your website. It says, where faith meets the problems of the world. And I hear it all the time from people. We, we should just be about saving souls. But your, your statement there in Christian ethics tends to imply that Christianity ought to be seen in action. Is that, is that true? Well, yeah, um, it's a it's a very narrow understanding of Christianity that it's only about, you know, saving the invisible souls of people so that when they die, they can dwell in heaven with God. We are here on this earth. We are embodied creatures living in communities, eating and drinking and and breathing and trying to flourish and trying to have a good life and trying to trying to be good family people and trying to pursue vocations. And in other words, the world, uh, the world is and ought to be the proper uh, context uh, of our reflection about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And ethics asks all the questions about how do we navigate this world personally and in the church and in society. Um, so that otherworldliness, yes, there is a dimension. I mean, we will all face death probably most people who are listening today, they've buried somebody, a grandparent, a parent, or whatever. We all face what happens when we die. Um, but what happens when we live? How do we live? How do we, uh, how do we follow Jesus in this world in, in terms of what he said and the example he gave and, and what it means to be faithful to him now? And that's really what ethics is about. Yeah, for our household, my, my wife and I, we live in Fresno, California, it's a city with severe economic issues uh, and poverty issues and, and really poverty issues that are cited in certain parts of town due to our long history of redlining and not allowing minorities to live north of a certain border. And we always believed that our, our Christianity ought to drive us to want to say, to change that, um, that God's judgment over people groups in the Bible is almost always, you for, you've forgotten about justice for the poor and the foreigner and the marginalized and the widow. So to me, if we're truly following Jesus and reading the Bible, those that love your neighbor as yourself thing seem to be really important. And those depart from me, I never knew you passages ought to make us a little bit worried. You know, this very day, Paul, I started writing on my next book, and it's simply going to be called The Moral Teachings of Jesus, mm. because I think we need to be reminded of what he actually said. Uh, it's going to be a class that I'm teaching here at Mercer in, in the spring semester, and so I decided to write a book to go along with it. Um, but Jesus was, was the most holistic person that I think I've ever read about, heard about. He had a vivid and vital um, relationship with God, his father, and a vivid and vital confidence in God and uh, orientation towards God, um, which then led him to have a vivid and vital love for people and concern for the well-being of people. Mm -hmm. And um, he exhibited that every day of his ministry that we've read, that we can read about, and he taught it consistently, synthesizing through the entire Hebrew Bible, and um, to to conclude 
What is the highest and greatest and central commandment? Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. And and then in Luke, when he's asked, well, who is my neighbor? He then comes forward with the Good Samaritan story. Yeah. Your neighbor is the person bleeding by the side of the road. And it ought to be the most natural thing in the world for somebody like you and your wife to, to look at the Fresno neighbors who are kind of bleeding by the side of the road and ask, what does it mean to love them? And so... Yeah. So that that's not um, that's not rocket science, right? In other words, I'm saying you have to learn to ignore the teachings of Jesus as thoroughly as Christians have learned to do. Yeah, somebody has to teach you to do that because if you just open the pages of the Gospels and read them on a regular basis, it's really hard to to end up with some kind of unconcerned otherworldly religion. Well, and it you know for us. It, it, Taking care of the poor in Christianity has become, you know, a Thanksgiving Day feed or mm -hmm. uh, a backpack drive in in church. And again, if I, I, particularly if you read the the Hebrew text from their prophets, uh, Jeremiah five, which I which is a passage I go to a lot because I think we're in a very similar season as Jeremiah lived in, and and it was, you know, you've become fat and sleek and rich. How would I not judge such a people? And 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 so it's not to me taking care of the justice for the poor is not give them a sandwich. Uh, it is looking at systemic issues that create poverty and trying to get rid of those and creating economic opportunity. And if there is systemic racism in our justice system, which I think it's unquestionable that there is. That should matter to somebody who is truly a follower of Jesus. Right. Um, I think I think that we now have a little bit better understanding of how it was that Christians uh, trained themselves to not see this. Right. Right. And, it, you know, here's one diagnosis um, that in the United States, white Christianity or the, the Christianity of the, um, the affluent, you know, racial power group um, needed for people to be able to live at peace with themselves and go to sleep at night in a good conscience. They needed to alter or edit Christianity so that it wouldn't challenge them. Mm. Um, here in the South, uh, there's been some really interesting work done about what's been called slaveholder religion, that the Christianity had to be made um, compatible with owning other human beings. Mm. And that's quite a trick. So so for that to work, you need to do things besides dehumanizing the people that you are attempting or saying that you are owning. You also need a Jesus who is cool with that and a God who who's fine with that. And, um, and so making moves like de-emphasizing the moral teachings of Jesus, focusing on the um, cross and resurrection only, which is mainly about uh, this is the path. If we believe the right thing about this, then we get to go to heaven when we die. Um, uh, basically, private. We, I would call it privatizing, spiritualizing, and um, otherworldlyizing the, the message of the Bible. Um, and, and <laughs> that's a, that's a, uh, that's a difficult term to use. Yeah. Otherworldlyizing. I think I just made up that word. I um, like it, but you got to do that. So you can sleep in good conscience at night. I really believe that people need to feel 
most people need to feel like they're a good person living a good life. Yeah. And if their conscience is troubled, what we ought to do is look for where the problem is, repent and change what we're doing. But sometimes what we do is we alter or edit Christianity so that we can sleep comfortably at night. And I think I think that there's a long history of Christians doing this. So I'm calling people back to Jesus himself, to the teachings of Jesus, to the example of Jesus. And um, let's get some content back in our faith that was always there that oftentimes we set aside, you know. Well, that's interesting. So atonement theory that Jesus had to be crushed for our sins. And now the message is get people to say the sinner's prayer and get them to, to heaven um, then mix in a, a good dose of eternal conscious torment, hell, and end times left behind. I, I mean, it, it it's almost like we've been we've been kind of groomed over decades to be where we are today. Yeah, and um, this also speaks to some of the um, distortions in our public involvement because um, because I think Jesus, in his message of the reign of God, the kingdom of God and in uh, his engagement with the power structures of his time and the overall nature of his teachings provides direction for how we should engage the public arena. But if you've bracketed all of that off and made Christianity entirely about Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I wouldn't have to be eternally consciously tormented forever, and he might come back any day now, let's see if we can count the calendar and figure out whether it's 2023 or 2024, we are distracting ourselves uh, from the guidance that Jesus wants to offer us about how we actually live in this world. And um, uh, so I would say the burden of my work as an ethicist for 30 years has been to try to work against this and to try to, to point out what's there in our faith that can guide us in every dimension of our lives in this world. And then we get called heretics and false prophets for saying this is what the Bible actually says. <laughs> I, I can't, I, I don't think I could count the number of times I've been called either of, or both of those things. So yes, uh, I have I have the scars to show uh, to prove it. So whatever. You mentioned the Good Samaritan story. And, and sometimes I feel like we missed the lead up to that parable. Uh, and you talked about it a little bit there. But I, I you know, I always envision this uh, you know, this religious guy coming to Jesus and saying, how do I, you know, how do I get to heaven or how do I inherit the kingdom? And and Jesus says, well, what are the, what are the most important commands? And, you know, the guy says, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, good job. You got it. And you can almost see the wheels. I, I see the wheels turning in the guy's head. And he's like, wait a second, that was too easy. And so then he, like you said, he asked the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus then tells the story of the Good Samaritan where the religious guys of his day are the evil ones and the Samaritan is the hero. And I think we missed the story then because we don't understand what a Samaritan meant to those people. So how, how would you equivocate that story? Equivocate, not the right. How do you parallel that story to today? Who are the Samaritans of today that Jesus would tell and make the hero of that story if he was telling that that story in our culture. Um, how about the uh, undocumented immigrants? Yep. Um, or the just released prisoner who was in jail for armed robbery but got out 
and he's the one who helps the bleeding person by the side of the road, right? Yeah. Um, the Democrat. Uh, yeah. In uh, <laughs> you know your overwhelmingly you know kind of Republican loyal community, it might be, uh, you know, the Democratic uh, politician, uh, the some you know or so, some visible Democratic politician. But you know, Nancy Pelosi stopped you know, or whoever, you know, pick somebody who's been demonized and then, you know, but see, we all get challenged by this because, because yeah. Yeah. People experiencing homelessness uh, from peg there. Yes. Because we, we have the categories of people that we respect and that we think good will come from and, and the categories that we don't respect. And I think one of the reasons why Jesus's earthly ministry was so short was because he was constantly doing things like this. You 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 lift up the Samaritan as good. Um, you stop in a Samaritan village and have a conversation with the woman at the well, um, and so on. You you hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes at dinner. You are going to get the wrath of the of the religious authorities and political authorities eventually on your on your head, and. You know, one one thing I admire so much about Jesus, it looks other than the Gospel of John, where which I think is a little bit less historically tight, you know, narrative. If you look at the Synoptic Gospels, it looks like Jesus's earthly ministry lasted a year. Yeah. One year. And he had people wanting him dead within the first days of his ministry. Um, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Yeah. I mean, in Luke, that's what happens in his inaugural address in Luke four. Yeah. So one thing I would ask my Christian friends is, what was it about the earthly Jesus that enraged religious and political authorities and regular people so often and so much, and yet drew the loyalty of the masses of people so that and when he went into the temple in the last week, um, it's really clear that he, after he cleanses the temple, he occupies the temple. They can't get rid of him. <laughs> the text says... Because they were afraid of the crowds. Wow. So what was it about his persona, his way of talking about God and about morality and about what makes God happy and what makes God angry, um, and the, his way of treating people, his way of prioritizing humanity, that that made him so compelling, but also so dangerous. I want more of that. I think that's what following Jesus is supposed to look like. You know, wow, and and so it's going to put us in positions that are very uncomfortable in terms of the routine functioning of society and community, and and I think that's probably where we're supposed to be found. And even in the way he did his teaching, he was constantly poking a finger in the eye. Even in that inaugural address, I was reading it this morning in Luke four. The reason why they want to throw him off the top of a hill. After he says, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor is is because he says, essentially, by the way, if you're not willing to be responsive to this message, God will pro God will go to the Gentiles and let you be bypassed. And they want to throw him off a cliff because of that. Yeah. Um, Jesus did not recognize our tribalisms. And that's a good warning for us, isn't it?
Okay, I'm not finished talking to David Gushy. There's a part two to come in two weeks on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. If you're a subscriber on the Pastor Paul community website at pastor-paul.com, you can go right now and hear part two. You don't have to wait. You get early access. But David Gushy will be back with us on our next edition of the Post-Evangelical Podcast to talk about the fact that Jesus isn't wrong, we're wrong, and how we work that out. Please go to Pastor-Paul right now, uh, pastor-paul.com, sign up for my newsletter, subscribe, and check out all our subscription opportunities that will help you support and grow this ministry. We'll see you next time when we get together to talk about faith and spirituality in this new season on the Post-Evangelical Podcast.